This morning, we continue our summer series entitled, I Have Questions. In fact, we're moving toward the end of the series. It will conclude next week. But let me thank, thank all of you that took the time back in May to submit a question or two. Uh, I pray that the series has been a help to you as we've explored what the Bible says concerning those questions. But I want to thank you for taking the time to submit a question. Now, I've attempted to address as many of the questions as possible. I will not be able to get to them all. But I do point you to a resource that might answer the question that you raised in an equally helpful way. I promoted this website at the start of the series. It's entitled, or the website is actually gotquestions.org. Uh, they've answered over 570,000 questions that various people have raised, and they seek to offer to the reader a biblical response. And so if you've not yet visited this website, I would encourage you to take advantage of it. They really seek to do, I think, a beneficial job of addressing the questions that you have. And through our series, I've sought to address as many of the questions that you raised as possible. And early on, you probably noticed, I tried to group them thematically where there were similar types of questions, I would put them together so that we could look at them as a whole. Well, today, there's not gonna be any connection between the questions. We're gonna just look at some random questions that you've raised, and I hope, as we consider what the Bible would say, that you'll have a better understanding of how to approach that question, but even more in your own spiritual life, how you can come to God's word to find answers to the questions that you have. To start off, someone raised a question about the Apostle Paul, and we'll begin today's lesson with that. The person asked, did Paul ever meet Jesus before the Damascus Road encounter? Well, to address the question directly, there's nowhere else in the New Testament where it says that Paul, or also known to us as Saul, had an encounter with Jesus prior to what is recorded in Acts chapter 9. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul didn't observe Jesus during his public ministry. In fact, I think you could probably safely presume that the apostle did. He may have even heard Jesus teach. He certainly was aware of Jesus in a way that caused him early on to oppose Jesus as strongly as he, as he did. Though we don't, again, know if he had an earlier uh, encounter with Jesus, we do know definitively in Acts chapter 9, on his way to Damascus, he encounters the resurrected Jesus. And what should be celebrated is that encounter changed the life of Paul. It brought him into relationship with God in an eternal way, and he became one of the most outspoken followers of Jesus Christ that one could ever meet. Indeed, what happened on that road on that day was so defining in the apostle's life, if you read on through the book of Acts, he couldn't help uh, talking about that. He frequently spoke of when he came to experience the saving power of Jesus Christ. And so we can rejoice with Paul in that. That said, let me just pause and say, you know, as we address all these questions, there are really two questions to me that are the most important questions that all of us should answer. 
The first one being, as Paul came to experience experience it, have I responded to who Jesus is? See, early on in Paul's life, he did not believe Jesus to be the son of the living God. He did not accept the message of Jesus Christ. But as Acts chapter 9 describes, on his way to Damascus, he came face to face with the truth of who Jesus is. And he believed in him. He responded to him. Have you done that? And we can spend weeks answering random questions about this and that, but this is the question that absolutely matters. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father except through me. Have you responded to him in that way? And out of that, an equally significant question for someone who has trusted in Jesus is this, am I following Jesus Christ? See, when the apostle encounters Jesus in a saving way, he immediately begins to follow Jesus. It radically changed his life for the better. Well, is that not also true of you? If I say I believe in him and trust in him, then you should be following him? I mean, this is a question that would, I think, be helpful for us to ask, maybe on a daily basis, as we move into whatever's ahead of us into the midst of the day. I ask myself, am I following Jesus? Am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to allow Jesus to be seen in who I am and what I say? Am I following Jesus? The Apostle Paul did. And as a result of that, he touched a large part of of the Roman world, declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, that was the opening question. Let's shift our attention and consider a question that someone raised with regard to parables. Now, through the course of our series, I've referred to several parables as a part of the the response as we've allowed Jesus to teach us different things. But the question that was raised, I think, is one maybe you've wondered within yourself. The person described it this way, why did Jesus speak figuratively and in parables? Was it to test our understanding of the scriptures? Was it so that these teachings would be easy to remember? Was it to give a a sort of fairy tale so that the story would last through time? I think on the front end, we should acknowledge that a part of the benefit of the parables is the ability to remember them. So there is, I think, an element of that where Jesus shared parables with his followers, with his disciples, so that they could recall the insight, the lesson that was being highlighted through a particular parable. That said, more was going on than simply that. In fact, in Matthew's gospel in the 13th chapter, one of the disciples began to notice that early on, Jesus seemed to be very direct in his teaching. Read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is very straightforward in teaching the the lessons about the kingdom. But the disciple observed as people were beginning to gather more and more around Jesus, it seemed like at that point, Jesus began to use the teaching story, the parable, 
more frequently. So they asked him, why are you doing this? Indeed, let me just read that exchange with you because it may help us find the answer that that we need to consider. In Matthew 13, verse 10, then the disciples came and said to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given. And he have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This, Jesus says, is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Perhaps as I read this passage, you're thinking, well, that didn't help me at all. No, listen to what Jesus is actually trying to emphasize. A part of why he would use parables was to distinguish those who had faith from those who did not. See, the story would be heard by anyone and everyone, but it's only those that are responding to Jesus for who he is, Jesus explains, that will actually grasp the truth of what's being revealed. So, in a sense, faith precedes one's capacity to understand the parable. If faith is not there, it will just sound like a story to them. But if faith is present, then suddenly it opens in their eyes and hearts an understanding of truth that can affect their lives. So in a way, the parable separates those who have committed themselves to Jesus from those who do not. Incidentally, in the Gospel of John, Jesus kind of emphasizes this directly as he was speaking to a crowd. And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, the emphasis Jesus made there is everybody was hearing what Jesus said, but not everybody was responding to him accordingly. They weren't living with it. They weren't embracing it. They were just listening, and then it would just kind of go its way. The same idea, I think, is behind Jesus' use of the parable. He is trying to reveal truth to those who have responded to him, and it's your faith that helps you recognize the truth. But if you're just kind of a casual listener, there'd just be a story to you. And that's the point that Jesus was trying to make with the disciples. Shifting again, someone asked a couple of questions with regard to prayer. Actually, two separate people raised questions in relationship to prayer, and let's consider what they're asking. The first person asked, is it okay to pray to the Holy Spirit? An interesting question. Now, the person went on to say, now, wasn't the Spirit given to us, so the Spirit is with us, so wouldn't it be natural that if we're going to talk to God in prayer, we'll talk to the, the presence of God with us directly, just speaking to the Spirit? I remind you that Jesus taught his disciples early on, uh, at least in a general way, how we can approach God in prayer. And what does Jesus teach in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, let me remind you of it. Jesus in Matthew 6 and verse 9 said, Now pray then like this, Our Father 
in heaven, hallowed be your name. Two quick comments. The first, Jesus wanted his disciples to recognize that they are afforded the most extraordinary privilege. That they can approach God as a child would a father. It's a, it's a reassuring language that Jesus is introducing when he teaches us to speak to God as Father because he wants us to know because of our mutual faith in him that we can approach God in that way with a confidence and an expectation that God, our Father, is going to respond to the needs that we have. And so Jesus said, when you speak in prayer, speak to him as Father to reassure the heart. Now, does this instruction then, I guess forbid you from praying to the Spirit. I don't think it actually it does. I think there are occasions where you may find yourself appropriately saying, Spirit of God, would you help me now? I mean, Jesus is the one who describes his presence through the Holy Spirit in us as the Spirit of truth. And you may find occasions where you're reading God's Word or you're reflecting on what to do. You might ask, even ask the Lord himself, now, would you guide me, Spirit? Would you help me to know what I should do? I don't think that's a violation of what Jesus is teaching. And for that matter, there may be occasions where out of a sense of longing and desperation, you may just cry out directly to Jesus, Jesus, help me. <laughs> that's not a violation of Jesus' teachings. Again, Jesus taught us to pray in his name. And so what I would recommend is this. Why don't we just appreciate that the God that we've become privileged to know is more glorious than we could ever imagine. He's revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. But don't be confused by that to conclude that then he's going to be put off if you speak to the Spirit instead of the Father or the Father instead of the Son. When we speak to God, he knows who he is. And we should re relax a little bit and have the confidence that we can come to him as Father, we can acknowledge his presence, his spirit. We can celebrate the power of his son, Jesus Christ. And all of that may find its way in the dialogue of our prayers. And he's not dishonored by that. He is the fullness of father, son, and spirit. I'm not going to deny most often I speak to him as father um, because I'm reassured <laughs> that I can approach him with that level of confidence. And so I, I hope, as you would consider that, that you just find, because of Jesus, this freedom to relate to God in a personal way through, through the privilege of prayer. Interestingly, someone else asked a question about prayer, and, and it's this. If you pray out loud, can Satan use your request to oppress you? Now, that was an intriguing question, and I, I think I understood why they raise it. It's like this. See, what do we do in our prayers? We, we lift before the Lord what we're struggling with, right? We lift to him our concerns, our fears, our weaknesses. And the person, is, the person thought about it, then that is telling the devil what our fears are and our weaknesses are. Wouldn't it be better to keep him out of that and... Not let him know that. I would reassure you, first of all, in knowing that when we speak to God in prayer, 
I think as the Apostle John says, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so we don't need to be nervous about what the devil uh, attempts to do or in some way tries to do in the midst of, of the prayer. I, I would encourage you, in fact, to pray out loud more times than not. I, I think voicing a prayer, at least in my experience, kind of awakens faith within me. Um, I'm addressing God in a personal way, just as I'm addressing you today, or I would address somebody that I'm interacting with. When you speak it, there, there's just something dynamic with that. But take heart. If you're confiding in the Lord out loud, you're fears, your struggles, your weaknesses, the Lord has already provided the victory in your life. There's nothing the devil can do against you apart from what God would allow. And if God allows it, then God's going to do even more in the midst of that. In Ephesians 6, the apostle wrote to the believers there, and he says, you just need to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And then he describes how the devil tries to wage war against us, but God has provided in the form of a spiritual armor. He's provided from himself everything that we need. So don't panic. If the devil now knows what's troubling you, rejoice that God's already providing for what you need. And the devil can't do anything with that. I'm not denying the devil tries to seize upon our weaknesses and to discourage us at times. I mean, the devil never allows a disappointment to go without some effort on his part or the realm of the darkness that, that he works through to, to kind of discourage us further. But let's rejoice in knowing that we can come to God as Father and that he will indeed provide for us what we need. I wouldn't hesitate, personally, to pray out loud. Now, I did say random, right? We've gone from Paul to parables to prayer. There, there wasn't an intended alliteration there. We're going to go now to a question on giving. Someone asked this question. Where does God and his word stand on tithing for the retired person on a very limited fixed income, or the person that has lost their job and is seeking new employment, but their ship hasn't come in yet, both with their reserve savings depleted and they are up against a wall. I appreciate whoever submitted this question. I would first point you to something that we emphasized this last fall um, so that you can have a fuller understanding of what I'm about to summarize. If you remember, when we entered the Impacting Tomorrow Today campaign, I spent several weeks talking about what the Bible teaches about giving. And you can listen to those messages on our website at northfortworth.com. And I would recommend, if you raise this question, uh, listen to part four of that series. We considered what uh, the book of Malachi teaches about trusting God. In fact, through the servant Malachi, God challenged his people of old to test him, to trust him enough to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That was uh, God's message through the prophet to the people of old. And in that message, if you listen to it, you'll 
consider what that's teaching us in terms about faith, I think, in a, in a broad way, in how we'll trust the Lord. So I might recommend that you, you go online and listen to that. But let me answer your question directly in a way that I hope will be helpful uh, to us this morning. I've said often, as you think about what the Bible teaches about giving, that you're never going to find any person in Scripture who is truly a person of faith that doesn't respond to the Lord in some way in giving. That's what people of faith do. They give of themselves, they give of their time, and if you study what the Bible teaches, they actively give of their resources. They give to the Lord. Now, I guess the question is, is it expected of a retired person or a person with very limited means at this point to, to, to give a tithe, which the Bible would define to be 10%. Well, as I said back in the fall, I'll say again, as I come from the Old Testament into the New Testament, I believe the principle of the tithe was, was really kind of an object lesson that carries over into the New Testament because it's, it's primarily promoting a heart of faith that in the Old Testament, God asked them, he commanded them to give 10% so that they would learn, according to Deuteronomy, to fear the Lord, to, to maintain a, a healthy understanding of who God is. And so to me, it wouldn't then make sense that as we move into the New Testament, that suddenly God wouldn't have some expectation of us responding in physical ways through the giving of an offering, that it seems odd to me that those who've received the wonder of salvation through Jesus Christ would suddenly be excused from demonstrating any measure of faith with the stewardship of their resources. That, to me, never really made sense. I agree with Randy Alcorn in, in his book on finances that in his mind, what you see in the Old Testament through the example of tithing is, is like a, a child riding a bicycle with, with training wheels. It was kind of to introduce the pattern of faith among the people of God of old so that they would discover in a growing way how they could rely on the Lord. But as Randy Alcorn notes, as we move into the New Testament, recipients of greater grace from God's goodness that we take the training wheels off, not so that we would necessarily give less, so that we might potentially give more is the implication that we don't look at our resources from the point of view of what's mine, but we, we recognize God blesses us and sustains us so that we might make a difference in the world around us. Now, if you're on a fixed limited income, I'm not diminishing your question at all. I'm just trying to say, think in terms of, of your faith and how you're responding to God in a personal way. I'm assuming as many days as God allows me to live, I don't want to reach a point where I fail to honor the Lord in faith, whether it's through the giving of my time or the giving of my resources. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. I think this is a relevant passage to kind of bring this question toward an end. He writes this, and I think it emphasizes this whole notion of faith that should be present within our all hearts. He says in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, 
For God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful is emphasizing a giver whose heart is full toward him, full of faith. And, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He goes on to add in verse 10, He, God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. I would say to us all, a person of faith honors the Lord with their time, with their abilities, with their resources. That is the pattern of Scripture. And I pray God will just encourage us all. I pray even as we move into the Impacting Tomorrow Today campaign, we'll recognize that what Paul is describing here is absolutely true. We never outgive God in terms of what God is capable of doing to maintain what he desires to do. Something to think about. Shifting the focus still again, there was a couple of questions that highlighted the topic of anxiety. Now, this may be a connection to what we just discussed because some of you are anxious about giving. But really, the questions that were raised really dealt with, well, as a believer in Jesus, how do we deal with anxiety? It seems like in 2019, we're living in a culture that is increasingly anxious. And some have noted, it seems, that's especially true among the younger generations. Now, given the, how our airwaves and the internet is bombarded with all of the negative stories and information that's out there, I, I guess it's almost understandable why there is a spike in anxiety. But if I'm a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, how do I deal with my own heart when it becomes anxious. We've looked at this in the past, but let me point you to just three verses that may give us a renewed focus for, for this morning. Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Philippi. In Philippians 4, he says this, as we enter into life, as we live life, what do we need to be actively doing? We need to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, he goes on to say that part of the reason for that is the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. And, and what he's trying to help us to appreciate is day by day, we find, I think, the proper state of mind as we rejoice in the active relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Every morning, we renew that awareness of him. Every morning, we recognize he's with us. We go into the day facing what we will face, not with him as a distant spectator, but with him as a present participant. We rejoice in the Lord, in his presence. And then the provision we know accompanies his presence. We say, then what do I do when the anxiety kind of manifests? Well, Paul goes on to say in verses 6 and 7, Do not be anxious for anything. But instead, notice what he prescribes. In everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, don't 
move too rapidly past that. Why do you need to interject thanksgiving as you're seeking God's provision? You need to remind yourself of the faithfulness of the Lord, of his sufficiency. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, to have an anxious moment isn't an indication that you lack faith. It's an invitation to renew faith. That when you become anxious over whatever it may be, allow that moment to be just an opportunity for you to refocus and to place whatever it is now into his care. You express it to him. You release it to him. You acknowledge his sufficiency in that moment. And as that happens, as the heart of faith releases it into the hand of the one who's with you, by the way, then you can move forward in peace, can't you? At least maybe for 30 minutes. And if the anxiety returns, then what do you do? You, you just repeat this. You, you are cultivating a faith response when the emotion, whatever it is, manifests. Now, let me again stress, just because you feel the anxiety or the fear, I'm not insinuating that you don't have faith. I'm stressing that's some opportunity now for you to express the faith. So that as you admit, I'm feeling this, you lift it to God and say, God, help me now. Lord Jesus, help me now. Spirit, help me now. I mean, talk to him. And no, his intention is to bring a calmness to the heart so that you take a few more steps forward into the morning, afternoon, or into the evening ahead. I'm encouraged by the Apostle Paul where he also says that we should actually kind of just live in this kind of spirit of conversation. He says we pray without ceasing. That's not to insinuate that you're constantly walking around with your eyes closed. It is, however, I think to highlight that we live consciously aware that Christ is always with us. And so we just kind of move in and out of the conversation with him, don't we? It's the impression I have from that. So that when I'm anxious, I tell him and ask for him to help me now to move forward in peace with him. Anxiety. The person who asked that I address the topic of anxiety also included in their list of concerns the concern over suicide. I doubt there's any of us in this room probably that hasn't in some way been affected by maybe a family member or co-worker or distant uh, family member that lost their sense of hope to the degree where they committed suicide. What does the Bible teach about that? Earlier in January of this year, uh, Jim Howard, a pastor of a very sizable congregation in California, in fact, a uh, real life church in, in California, numbers over 6,000 members. So we're talking about a big church. Well, he took his own life. And this congregation was forced to deal with questions, well, what does this mean? I mean, what does this say? Well, let me on the front end say this. If I'm a 
genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that I lose, excuse me, it doesn't mean that there may not be occasions where I lose perspective. It doesn't mean as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ that I may find myself doing things that I shouldn't do. I mean, Christians stumble, don't they? Christians fail. Our faith in Jesus doesn't guarantee that we won't. And suicide is a horrible failure. Um, it's the indication that this person has lost all hope. A very short-sighted action on the part of the individual. But what I want you to consider is this. What the Bible teaches is if that person has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, even the act of suicide does not undo what Jesus did. It doesn't. Earlier in our series, we talked about the security of our salvation. And I think it's conceivable for a genuine believer to be so deceived in their own thinking that they then act out in a way that was so horribly short-sighted in terms of its long-term ramifications. To the credit of this church, they addressed what happened directly acknowledging the struggles of their pastor. <laughs> Indeed, he had struggled with mental illness for most of his life and had been on medication at various times of his life. And regrettably, he, from time to time, would just choose to go off of the medication. And if you know anything about medication for depression and those types of issues, that's, a, that's always a dangerous thing to just stop your treatment. And in some desperate moment, he, he took his life. Now, I said the church was very forthright in how they tried to address it. They also offered, I thought, was a, a helpful word of encouragement. Uh, they posted it on their webpage, 13 reasons why life is worth living. I'm going to just read them for you. Maybe you know someone that would, be, would benefit from hearing these things. Maybe today you're the one that needs to be reminded of these things. They noted the following. First of all, you are not alone. I hope we realize that. Second, you have value. In 1 Peter 2, it says we're a part of a royal priesthood. Even in our darker moments, in the eyes of God, we have tremendous value. We are his children. God cares about your tears was the third reason that they gave and fourth, you can find help. Hebrews 4 talks about how each of us as a child of God can approach the throne of grace and find help, the help we need in that hour of need. Number five, they reminded the reader that your life has purpose. Sometimes I think that's where our thoughts get jumbled. We don't see how our lives are of value or of purpose. And in such times, we need to pause and say, no, God is doing something in me, with me. Number six, what you are going through is temporary. Uh, our emotional down points, if, if you've ever struggled with Depression, and I'll admit to you, I've had times where I've struggled with emotional highs and lows. One of the things that helps me is to remind myself, okay, this is just temporary. You move through 
these struggles. You find the grace of God in the midst of them. Number seven, there is a good way forward, even when life is hard. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that, you know, God's not going to allow you to be in a situation where there's not this way of deliverance for you. There is a way forward. Quickly, number eight, if you, uh, you are more than your outward appearance, in our day in which so much is made of appearance, that's important to note. Number nine, you cannot imagine what good lies in store for you. We need to anticipate the good that God is seeking to bring about. Number 10, you will not always feel this way. Again, returning to the state of heart and mind. And then three others. Number 11, you are greatly loved. Number 12, you will not be put to shame. Hebrews 13.5 describes that God will never leave us or forsake us. And finally, the 13th, God is up to good in your life. If you'd like a copy of this and can email me, I'll send you the whole list with the scripture references included. But what I wanted to highlight with you was whoever raised the question, we need to recognize we live in a culture where it seems as if suicide is an acceptable way out. Too many people are giving up on what God could do or would do in and through their lives. And as a people of faith, we need to affirm God's presence. We need to come alongside those that are emotionally struggling. We need to live life together in a way that God brings us all through those heartbreaking, dark chapters of our lives. That should be what we do. Now, someone asked in regard to the topic of suicide, what about the growing trend of euthanasia where people in some states are actually legalizing assisted suicide? I hope I don't need to remind you, but let me just say, as a people of faith, what we actively do is we we elevate the sacredness of life in terms of the unborn, but also in terms of end-of-life issues, where as a person is facing whatever they're facing, medically speaking, they conclude the easy way out is to, to employ an assisted suicide so that they don't have to have a prolonged level of struggling. Let me stress that what we want to do as a people of faith is ultimately place our lives in the hand of God. He's the one who gives life. He's the one at the appointed hour that receive life back unto himself. And you say, well, sometimes, especially when the health issues are severe, it, it seems that it's just too much. Now, let me say, I think sometimes we need to be willing to admit sometimes what we do is we prolong dying rather than prolong living. And medically speaking, it's not euthanasia to decide that I'm not ready to continue this treatment. I'm instead ready to to see the God who saved me. And that's, that's, that's not suicide. That's acknowledging my life is ultimately in his hand. And medically now, it, it's obvious the, the treatment isn't going to be the solution, so I'm going to just trust the Lord. But that said, 
Listen, to try to speed that up through euthanasia, I think is short-circuiting what God would seek to do in the midst of it. As hard as those chapters may be, you've got to realize that God is going to do something in the midst of that. And I want to give God the opportunity, the time to communicate with whoever he's going to communicate with. I don't want to short that by a day. I want to give God that opportunity. And so as a people of faith, as states wrestle with the issue of euthanasia, I hope we'll stand with those that want to uphold life and the sanctity of it. Which brings me to the final thought, and I close with this. It was the final question, and I attached it to the end deliberately. What is meant by the joy of the Lord is my strength? That's taken from Nehemiah, verse, chapter 8, verse 10, or through the, uh, the prophet the following is described. It says, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The book of Nehemiah is written to the people of God who've returned from exile. By the 8th chapter, they're now confronting their own relationships with God and the word of God was being read and their hearts were being convicted and God, through the prophet, steps up and says, now stop grieving and start rejoicing because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And what's meant by that phrase is this, your relationship with the Lord is the basis of joy, and it's that that strengthens us when we're confronted by all that life brings. The joy of the Lord should be our strength. Our active relationship with God should be that renewing power that enables us even to deal with those heartbreaking episodes of life. In a sense, I think Nehemiah is just emphasizing what we already noted the Apostle Paul directs us to do. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. As we've touched on so many different topics today, my hope is that God will help us realize there are answers to the questions we have. But at the end of the day, what we need to focus first and foremost upon is the faith relationship we have with Jesus Christ and allow that to bring us forward for his glory. Let me pray for us. Dear God, I come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. As we've addressed all of these varied questions, I pray you've encouraged us in different ways. You've caused us to think. We've recognized the relevance of the Bible to speak to these issues. I pray wherever a person may be now that you would just reassure them, lift them, encourage them. If someone has never trusted in Jesus as their Savior, I pray there could be a fresh appeal to their hearts 
this very moment, that they would choose to believe in him. Speak to our hearts, even now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.